0: You ever have a friend that's so dear to you, so near to you, knows you so well that he could ruin you? Alan Miracle is one such friend. He's here today. And Terry and Chloe, right? Yeah. You grew up really fast, so I was sort of guessing there. And Alan is one of my dearest friends in the whole world, and a man who really I know loves me and who desperately loves the Lord, and, and if I ever need a personal revival, I have breakfast with him, and we go away, don't we? And we go back, don't we? Years, and uh, we know that God is faithful, don't we? We've seen him faithful in our lives crazy faithful in our lives. So I just wanted to say hi to you, uh, Alan and Terry and Chloe, and I feel honored you're here, and I'm probably in trouble with your pastor. So, Revelation chapter 2, we're making our way, we're worshiping our way through this wonderful, the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, and our, in our chunk of text that we arrive at today now is in one of the seven letters to the churches, the second, Smyrna, and that's found in Revelation 2.0 and verses 8 through 11. It's a little short piece of scripture there, Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Now every week, we just simply move to the next chunk of the Bible. I'm tempted often to think, well, here's another chunk, and I'm not sure what's here. I know it's the Bible. I know the right answer. But often when you first look at it, you think, well, is this really going to capture the attention of people? It's this interesting passage, you know. And then the other thing I a lot of times think is is it relevant? Is it relevant to their life? Is it gonna matter to them? Is it gonna interest them? Is it gonna matter to them? And and to be honest, I know the answer is always yes on that, but I'm always tempted or often, I'm tempted to look at a passage and think, in what way is this important and and how is this gonna be relevant or, or or interesting? until I begin to dig, and then I begin to study, and then I begin to read, and then I begin to meditate, and then I begin to make connections. And then in the scripture, every passage becomes fascinating. And this passage is fascinating. And the relevance of it just leaps into our lives. And this passage in particular really is especially fascinating. And when we meditate on this passage, like I've done this week, it just pulsates with like a shocking relevance. You'll be actually shocked how incredibly timely and relevant it is to the world in which we live right now. For instance, let me just say it this way. Here's kind of a question that should really hang over our heads, and that's this. Will the Western church, the popular Western church, that's the church that we're in, in, in the West, will it really survive its affluence? Will it really survive its ease? Will it survive its own popularity? That's a real question. That's a, And then yet, in, the, in other parts of the world, the question is, will the rest of the church survive its pressure and its persecution? Incredible persecution, like at no other time in the history of the church, is happening right now, but not in the Western church. So the question is, will the Western church, will, will the church that we're in, will it survive its prosperity, will it survive its ease, And will the rest of the church survive the persecution? And that is exactly what the letter to Smyrna is about. Imagine, if you will, how did this work? I'm not really sure. You kind of like to use your sanctified imagination whenever you're reading a passage of scripture. And this is a narrative passage a bit. It's telling a bit of a story. And then it has, you know, it's obviously a letter. It's a little miniature letter, an epistle to a church. But it's kind of embedded in a narrative where John is on the Isle of Patmos. And he has a vision of Christ that's just crazy amazing, right? And then every time a letter goes to one of these churches, it refers back to that vision of Christ. And it takes a piece of that vision and says, this is the part of of Jesus, you need to see for your church what you're going through right now, right? So that's what's happening. And Smyrna is north of Ephesus. So Ephesus is a seacoast town. Smyrna is as well, 35, 40 miles due north on the Aegean coast in, in a big bay area. You imagine yourself into this. Try to imagine what that must have been like. So John somehow goes or sends someone to probably Miletus to meet the elders or the pastors or the messengers of the churches and there are probably like seven of them, right, to the messengers of the church, and they're plural, and he holds them in his right hand, that's what the scriptures are saying. And so imagine there are these seven messengers. Now, who are they? are they? Are they designees? Are they deacons, pastors? They're messengers of the church. And here they are now, and they're meeting with either John or his representative, and they're getting this scroll that they're going to actually hike. They're going to go to these churches throughout it's modern Turkey, but... And so, and they're going to start in Ephesus. And how does that work? Are the seven guys go to Ephesus? And then do they all sit there and everybody just kind of like, whoa, here's the letter from the apostle John who's being persecuted now, exiled to Patmos. And he says this is a letter, this is a message from Jesus through an angel to him to us. So it would have been really a big event in the church for this letter to be read in Ephesus. And then, and then what happens is the, the messenger to Ephesus stay and the six other guys travel together and they go to Smyrna and they leave there and the five guys travel to the next one. Interesting, isn't it? And who is And this messenger to Smyrna? We don't know for sure, but we have some educated guesses. But the letters have five things in common. Every one of the letters... We'll have, number one, it'll start with, there's seven of the letters, and they start with what? A description of Christ, a piece of that vision of the Son of Man that's given there in chapter one. So it starts with a bit of that. The second thing it has, after a description of Christ, it has Christ telling the church, kind of commending them for what they did right. This is good. This He's commending them. And then the second thing that's in most of the letters, but not all of them is, and here's what you've done that you need to correct. It's wrong. So here's who I am, here's what you've done that's good, here's what you've done that isn't good, and then he gives them, number four, a correction, and here's what I want you to do, or in some cases what I want you to continue to do. And then finally, and every one of the letters ends the same way, with a promise to those who are Nike victorious. Remember the Greek word was Nike, it's the, it's the overcomer victorious word, in the, and this is a key theme in Revelation. Jesus is the victorious one, and he draws with him those who believe in him are also going to have victory. And, that's the, and that word often used in the translation of the Bible that we use is overcomer. He who overcomes in every case... Where the letter's given, you have the description of Christ, what the church did well, what the church did poorly, how the church should correct that, or what the church should do or continue to do, and then it says, and if you become an overcomer, here's how I'm going to reward you. There's a promise of reward. It's in all of the text. So it makes my outlining real easy for the next few weeks, because everyone follows the exact same outline. We're going to follow that outline because it lends itself to our mind, but before we do that... Let's just simply read the text of Scripture here. This is a letter uh, from to the messenger of the church in Smyrna. Verse 8, chapter 2, Revelation, chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those... Who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. All right, let's, let's clear our hearts now, and let's pray in the next few minutes the message to the church of Smyrna will become a message to the church in Taylor, all right? Heavenly Father, how thankful that we are to be here today. How, how neat it was to see those young women follow you in, in obedience and in baptism. How, what a thrill that is. God, I pray that you would increase the number who are following you in, baptized, in baptism. I know there are people who are listening to my voice right now that that's exactly what needs to happen next in their life. And I pray that they would yield to you and submit to you in a glad submission that brings great joy, that they would obey you in baptism, that those who aren't saved would see the gospel, and that those of us who, who do know you, that you would give us a heart for the suffering church, a willingness to live and die for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So now you have this beautiful description of Jesus to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These things says, the first and the last who was dead and came to life. That's like the Alpha and Omega This in chapter 1 is repeated a whole bunch, of, a number of times, like at least four times, a reference to God. But Jesus uses it as a reference to himself. This is a strong proclamation of his deity god never had a beginning never had an end so jesus is the alpha and the omega he's the first and the last and if you have any doubt who this is it says you know the one who died and came back to life that can only be him the one who died came back to life who is the first and the last he identifies so jesus begins and this is by the way the suffering church of smyrna and he begins by saying i'm the one who died and came back to life. And he introduces in that really the theme of this whole entire section. He says, to the messenger in the church of Smyrna. What's interesting is that Smyrna is a name that means bitter, and it's associated with the spice myrrh. In the Bible, of course, you know, that was, remember, the, 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 that it that was the, the, the magi brought gifts to the Christ child, and one of them was myrrh. What's interesting when you study this is that Smyrna had uh, It had the exclusive rights to the trade, the export, and the import of myrrh. In other words, the the, the spice that wise men brought to Jesus may have come from Smyrna. And what happened? At the end of Jesus' life, his body was prepared for burial with spices of myrrh, which may, at the beginning and the end of life, this myrrh may have come from this city where Jesus would eventually send a messenger to give them a message of life. This is who he is. In chapter, uh, one, chapter 2 there in verse 8 and in verse 11, it kind of at the beginning and the end of this, there is this reference uh, to, to Jesus overcoming death. He's the one who is the first and the last who died and he rose again. And at the end in verse 11, when it's giving the commendation, it says to them, and those who overcome, it says you don't have to be hurt by the second death. It's interesting because Smyrna was known as a city that actually had fallen on hard times and become a not city. It had lost its status as a city. A great leader came along and raised Smyrna back to its former glory. And so Smyrna was known as a city that was dead and now it's alive. So there's a play on words here that Jesus is using in the message. Says, to the city that was dead and is now alive, comes a message from the one who was dead and who is now alive about the people that you are persecuting unto death within you, or about the people, those of you who are being persecuted. So here's a message from one who died and who came to life. Now, this is in, in verse 9, it says, I know, I know. This, in every one of the letters, Jesus says, I know. And this is powerful. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of verbs in that. He says, it, 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 when you follow the verbs that, that, that That are associated with Jesus. In each of these, they're rich. He says, "I know," and that's what stop and pay attention. Things are not happening to you that I don't know about. I see. I know you're not doing things that I don't know about. You don't have motives and and, in secrets that I don't know about. I know. He says this in every letter to the churches. He's walking among the candlesticks and he's saying, "I see what you're suffering." In this case, I see what you're suffering is what he's saying. I know your works, and specifically, he says. I know your tribulation. The word tribulation there is actually a reference to a form of torture that was used where a person would be put on a flat uh, surface and then weights would be put one after another on top of them. And in this text, there are like three or four different weights. And he says, I know the weight of tribulation that's torturing you right now. And there are four of them. There's the weight of poverty. There's the weight of slander. You see, this most of the heart of this text is in verse 10. There's the weight of poverty, there's the weight of slander, there's the weight of prison, and there's the weight of torture unto death, death by torture. These would, you have to agree, were like in increasing severity, heavy weights for people to be thinking about. And Jesus says to them, I know about this. The, the, the church in the world at large is really suffering today, suffering persecution today and even in america there are kind of the pre-tremors of persecution when someone walks into a place and says if you're a christian and i shoot you we used to tell stories about that in communist land remember that growing up we would tell stories about communist lands it was long ago that was far away you know back in the box rebellion if you're not a if you if you don't deny christ i'm going to kill you that happens in america today right it happens in america it does You say, well, I didn't hear about it on the news. No, you didn't, did you? Isn't that interesting? The president doesn't talk about that. The president talks about gun control, but he doesn't talk about, that. oh, he doesn't identify this was Christian persecution, and it frustrates us, doesn't it? And the Congress, Republican and Democrat and Independent and Tea Party, nobody's really saying that. Nobody's saying it. Nobody's saying, hey, there's persecution in the world. Look at this horrible Christian persecution. When it hits the mainstream press, our politicians and our mainstream press are soft-pedaling that. And for some reason, they're not calling it what it is. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? You'll notice that It's like, wait a minute, why didn't they tell the whole story? They wouldn't do that about anything else. And it kind of gets under your skin as a Christian. You're saying, why is it that there seems to be a conspiracy to suppress the whole truth that Christians are being persecuted? And as I thought about this, and it kind of makes your blood boil... But here's something much more painful that God, the Holy Spirit, brought to my heart. And it was like this. So, Ken, what are you doing about the suffering church? Are you talking about the suffering church? Are you exposing the truth about the suffering church? Are you suffering with a suffering church? You're a pastor. Are you leading the people to pray regularly? Do you often mention the suffering church? And so it's easy to criticize the president and the Congress, and it's easy to criticize the press, but really our job is really not to do that, but to show the world this is how we behave toward the suffering church. This passage that the Lord has brought sovereignly to our attention this week is is incredibly relevant to, the, to the, what's going on, our attitude toward the suffering church. And so there are these four weights, the weight of poverty, of slander, of prison, and then of the weight of brutal torture, execution. Look at there first at the weight of poverty. We now are reading in verse 9, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty. And then that parenthesis, but you are rich. And what he's saying, of course, is that you're physically poor. And there are different words for poverty in the Bible. One of them that is often used kind of means that you sort of live paycheck to paycheck. You're a common person. That's not the word here. This is the word where you desperately beg for your daily bread. I know that you are in incredible oppression and affliction of poverty because of this. Do you remember the story in the Bible where a guy gets an audience with Jesus? Can you imagine if you had an audience with Jesus, what would you ask him? What would you ask him for? What would you ask him to answer for you? This guy, he gets an audience with Jesus, and what does he say? Do you remember this? He says, hey, will you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? Well, that was really dumb. You know, from our perspective, we're like, are you kidding? You had one shot with Jesus, and that's what you did with it. You said, hey, my brother is not giving me a, a, a chunk of the inheritance. Make him do it. Jesus often taught by telling stories, right? It's a powerful way to do. And so this is what he did. He tells this guy a story. It seemed like a really serious question. It's almost like, you're not going to answer that serious question with a little story, are you? And he goes, yeah. This is a story that he tells you. There was a man, and he was rich, and he was increased with goods, and he had so much. And he said he's going to tear down his barns. He's going to build new barns. But what he didn't know is he's going to die the next day. And then you fool. Didn't you know your soul is going to be required of you? Hey, have a good day. What did that mean? The guy couldn't have missed it. What did the story mean? It was like, are you kidding me? You asked me the question about that, but your soul is going to be required of you. So now when people are persecuted, what tends to happen is in their, their poverty, they begin to recognize their spiritual riches it, along with their, their personal lack or, or poverty. If you get a chance, go on our uh, Right Now Media. If you, have, if you don't have access to it, let us know. We'll get you access to it valuable thing of family in our church has donated to us, and it's worth a lot of money, and it, everybody in the church can have access to it. And uh, Joe Stoll, who was the longtime president of Moody and now is the president of Cornerstone, does a teaching on this, on the seven churches. You can watch it. It's very, very good stuff. And if you, you log on there, you'll watch. You'll hear him tell a story. I'll give you my version of his story, but you want to watch his version of the story. He said he went to Russia, and he met a pastor, a poor pastor in Russia and while he was visiting there in Russia, this pastor said, I, I, you know, my mother is a devout Christian, and I, and I want you to meet my mother. She so loves the Lord. She's an elderly lady. She's served the Lord through, you know, the, the communist oppression in, in, in Russia. And so he said, well, I'd love to meet your mother and so they got on public uh, transportation and they went to the end of public transportation and then they got like on a bus, they went somewhere else and then he said they, they eventually found their way to this like a dirt road, a gravel road and then a dirt road and then a two track and then this, this like amazing little path that went to this little shanty village, just a little village of just little sh- little huts that were kind of pieced together. And then when they got to this one particular hut where his mother lived, she came out. And she was like the prototypical Russian babushka lady with a scarf around. But he said he looked at her face, and she was obviously older, and she'd obviously been through a very difficult life, but she had this glowing radiance about her. And, 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 and Dr. Soul said, you know, she thought, was well, so happy to see her son. But it really wasn't so much happy to see her son, or, or her joy wasn't really so much to, to meet a visitor from the United States that was well-known. She invited them in and she took of her meager substance and she provided a a meal for them, a gift for them, and all she could do was talk about her love for the Lord Jesus. Just bubbling over with her love, but she had nothing. She had nothing, but she was joyful with love for the Lord Jesus. And that was true about the suffering church here. Isn't it interesting? Adding stuff to our stuff only makes us happy for a short time. But when Jesus is our treasure. We never get tired of that. That's something to remember. They had this weight of poverty. And then there was the weight of slander. The word blasphemy there should should be or could be translated or understood. Not so much blasphemy against God, like we would normally use the term blasphemy, but it's, a, it's directed at the people. It's slander of the people. And if you study the literature at the time, you see that the, what the people did is they took Christian teaching. They distorted it to make it look weird or make it look perverse. And then they accused them of it, and the people couldn't overcome that. They were, they were persecuted because of this. And, and who was behind that? Well, of course, you had the, the Roman government and the Caesar worship, which was really significant in Smyrna there were temples to the worship of Caesar and Domitian and so forth but you had another group there so it wasn't just one group it wasn't just Romans actually it was the Jewish people there that oppressed them later on there would be a martyr and when they decided to burn this Christian martyr from Smyrna at the stake it was the Jewish people who said would you like us to bring wood for you how many of you know that like, the person is probably not your friend if they're bringing wood. When they're burning you at the stake, right? The Jewish people then would slander the church. And the slander was very difficult. That's what it says there. You notice there in verse 9. And it says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews. They're not really Jews. It's like they are the synagogue of Satan. They're the synagogue of Satan. It's kind of important for us to realize that all religion doesn't originate from God it's important for us to realize that the Bible is very clear that false religions do not have their origin in God. All religions aren't the same. Only one truth is true. Jesus alone is God. Anything else has its origins in Satan. So there's a sound clip for you right there. But that's what he said here. This is not a synagogue of God. This is a synagogue of Satan. And then he goes on to say, then beyond. so you have this weight of poverty on the people. Then you have this weight of slander the people and then an interesting thing here in in verse 10 do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer so he's not like the health wealth happiness guy who's saying if you follow me there'll be no suffering he's saying you're going to suffer just want you to know don't be afraid while you're suffering and he, and he says this indeed the devil is about to throw some of you in prison and then it has this odd little phrase that you may be tested So does the devil go around trying to confirm the faith of Christian people? Well, no. He just wants to torture them. He wants to oppress them. God takes whatever the devil sends into your life, and He turns it for your good and for His glory. And there are—we won't take time, but we could show you a dozen. We can show you more than we can show you dozens of passages of Scripture that teach that whatever Satan sends into your life, God will use for His glory. In this case, think about it. You're the church in Smyrna. And he says, the devil is going, te- is going to test you. And what's he going to do? He says it right here. Indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you'll have tribulation 10 days and be faithful unto death. That's not really a happy word. Like, I, Okay, so if you're sitting there and they're reading the scroll to you, you're like, can we have the other guy scroll? Do you mind? I mean, seriously. <laughs> we're gonna, so some of us are going to go to prison, we're going to be tortured, and we're going to die and be faithful. That's our word to you. I think I'm going to skip lunch today. Like, that's not good. And then you start looking around. Is it? Who's going to go to prison? You, me, some of you, not all of you. Some of you are going to go to prison. Oh, and it sounds like after that, you, you're going to what? Die. Hmm. So there's a message. He says, Satan is going to do that, but it's to test you. Folks, listen. You may have a, many of us have some prison in our life, and it, and it may not end well. And unless Jesus, unless we, we are alive, when Jesus Christ returns we're all going to eventually face death. So that's not going to be good. It's an enemy. And on the way to death, because we live in a fallen world, we're going to face serious hardships in our life. It's just a fact. What if God says, here's my plan for this person. I'm going to test them, and they're going to glorify me by keeping my praise on their lips until they faithfully die. That is what God is going to call many to do. Will they be faithful as they faithfully suffer, as they faithfully die? Will they be faithful to me? And of course you're going to see later on what's going to happen, but that's the issue here. He basically is saying, you're a good church, you're suffering, and you're going to suffer. Some of you are going to be in prison, some of you are going to die. Be faithful unto death. That's your job. So again, this isn't like the kind of stuff that you normally hear on, with the TV preachers because they, they skip these passages of Scripture, but this is red letters. This is from Jesus' lips to the church. And so we don't want to neglect this part because we may also be called to suffer faithfully. So they have this weight of slander. They have this weight of prison What's happening here is that a couple of things. They have persecution that has its roots in emperor worship, and they literally have temples to emperor worship, and they have laws for emperor worship. Domitian is the is is the Caesar, and he and, and they have a, a a law that they have to burn incense to Caesar once a year. If they won't, and they and they get a certificate when they do that. If they're ever caught without their certificate that they burned incense to Caesar that year, they are subject to capital punishment to death. This happened to Christians there. Christians could not burn incense to Caesar. And so they went around kind of with a constant death sentence hanging over them. If you checked on that, they wouldn't be able to produce that they had burned incense to Caesar. And sometimes people that like Christians would beg them, please, it's not a big deal, just do it so that you can live. But they wouldn't do it. There's something interesting here in verse 10 that's a little enigmatic, it's a little mysterious. Uh, and, and, and it really is important that you understand it, because when you have numbers in Revelation... Here's, here's my theory, and it's not mine alone, but, and that's this, that you take things literally as long as they make sense literally. So you don't immediately jump to make something figurative. We've already talked about a number of figurative things here, and there are symbols and figures and figurative things. But the basic rule of interpretive thumb is take it literally unless it doesn't make sense literally, then move to the next possible. So it says 10 days, and you'll often hear Bible commentators saying, well, this might mean a period of time, or it might might maybe not to be taken literally. What is interesting is there are a couple of Bible scholars that I read this week. Fascinatingly enough, here's what they say. And it makes total sense when you look at this passage. What's happening in the passage is, I'm going to call some of you to prison, some of you are going to be there 10 days, and then it says, then you'll be delivered to death and be faithful unto death. It's not like you would think, you're going to go to prison, then you're going to get out. Oh, oh, good, I'm out of prison now, and I'm glad I was only there for 10 days. What would happen is they've had gladiator games, and they would throw Christians or enemies of the state to the beast, or they would make them sport in gladiator games, in which they would always die. But they didn't want to spend a lot of money incarcerating these people and feeding them. They usually, the the time was about 10 days. What he's saying is, you're going to be in a holding tank for 10 days, then you're going to go to the lions. You're going to be in a holding tank for 10 days, then you're going to go to the gladiators. Some of you are going to be imprisoned for 10 days. Now, Now, think like that and read the passage, and it makes perfect sense. Don't fear any of these things which are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death." And then he says, "If you're faithful unto death, this brutal execution, then I will crown you with life." Like, "Wait a minute, if I'm going to die, how am I going to be crowned with life? How's it going to happen? If I'm faithful unto death, he's going to give me life. If you're only thinking in human terms, it wouldn't make any sense at all. But, of course, you know, you're a Christian. You know that the Bible talks about eternal life. And it talks about death and the second death, right? You know that. And this passage talks about the second death. So here you have the first thing, number one, a description of Jesus. The second thing, what they did right. And and then then you also have, really, uh, we would refer to what they did wrong. Well, there's nothing listed that they did wrong. Suffering can have that effect, that purifying effect. Can I ask you this question? Are you concerned with the purity of the church? Are you? Are you concerned with the purity of the church, with the sincerity of the church's faith? Are you concerned with the purity of the church? Go ahead and think about that. Do you think that pastors should be concerned with the purity of the church? If you're a dad, are you concerned with your purity and the purity of your family? I'm not just talking about like moral sexual purity. That's certainly a part of it. I'm just talking about the genuineness of your faith and, the, and the, just is this faith that we have the real thing? Are you concerned with the purity of your faith? A dad should be concerned all the time about his purity and the purity of his family. A mom could, should, be, should be concerned all the time about this genuineness of her faith and of the ones that she loved. Pastors and deacons and Sunday school teachers and leaders in the church should be constantly If you love God, you should be concerned about the purity of this church. If you love God, you should be concerned about the sincerity, the genuineness, the doctrine of fidelity, the moral purity, the honesty, the integrity, the holiness of this church that should mean a lot to you. But listen to me, none of you care more about that than God cares, and none of you can do what God can do. And sometimes what God will say to a church is, you've had your ease, and it's made you impure, and now I'm going to send suffering, and it's going to purify. I think that's what's going to happen. We look around, and say, is that person a real Christian? Is that person a real Christian? Oh, we're going to find out because the pressure is going to come and the real Christians are going to be obvious. But we'll oh, be careful. Don't like be pointing at other people. You remember when Peter when this, had this opportunity, he's like, I will never deny you. I will, and he was like, he was the first guy to jump out of the boat, man. Peter was the first guy to say the right thing. He really did love the Lord. And he said, I will promise you, those other lightweights, they'll deny you, but not me. I'm serious. I will never deny you. And he denied the Lord. And the Lord strengthened him. And he eventually preached and he eventually suffered. You know, it was that passage at the end of John, right? It's kind of interesting when you think, this is a book written by the Apostle John. One day, it's John and Peter in a post-resurrection appearance and others. And God. Jesus is talking to Peter. Remember that breakfast by the sea? And he says, you're going to go and, you know, feed my lambs and three times tell me you love me. And now you're going to go and you're going to suffer and you're, he implied you're going to die. Remember, many are defeated with impurity and with compromise from within without ever facing the lethal opposition of the world. God is for more concerned for our purity than we are. And he's capable of purging and purifying his church. And he's going to do that. So a couple of things I would say to me, Ken, and to you. And that is, I want to finish faithful. And... My greatest enemy might be me and not them, not the wicked politicians, not the liberal Christians, not the humanistic world out there, not the enemies of God. I could could ruin myself, right? I say that so that you will think the same thing. That's what Peter should have been thinking. It was him. It was internal. And a lot of people, they wipe out. They don't finish faithful. They get discouraged, or they cave in, or they get involved in, in compromise. or their, their convictions erode, and they stop really believing parts of the Bible. And then after a while, their whole life just gets unscrambled. And, and you know, pressure comes, and they stop believing parts of the Bible that are hard uh, to obey, and 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 then they're they're no longer faithful. And it's not because they were pressured so much by others. It was in, internal. But God can purify the church and make us faithful. So let's prepare ourselves for when God purifies the church. That He would, I think it'd be a good idea for us to get ready now. And to say, okay, God, I'm, I am I am I am tending to my faith, the fire of my faith. I am strengthening myself in the Lord. One of the reasons why we have grow groups in our church is for that very reason, and that is we need to prepare the church to be able to operate even if we don't have a building. We need to prepare, and this is serious, we need to prepare the church to operate, even if the government taxes us out of business as an organization, then their organism should just be flourishing, and there should be lots of people that know how to give the gospel, lots of people that know how to have a prayer meeting, lots of people that know how to connect with their neighbors, and that's why we're doing Grow Groups. It's not all just come and huddle here, you know, and wait for the the sky to fall, it's go out and rescue people. And even in a time when things get, when persecution comes in other parts of the world, you will Notice that the vitality of the church is in the house churches, in the small clusters of Christians, just like it was in the first century. So we should be thinking like that. What action did Jesus tell them to take? He said, be faithful unto death. I want you to be prepared to suffer and die faithfully. And then what did he say? And I, it didn't say you will be given the crown of life. He said, I will personally crown you with life. I'll give you the reward of life. You lay down your physical life, and I give you life no one will ever be able to take away. The devil will throw you in prison. I will test you, and I will crown you with life. It's interesting that he says this, that he says, I'll crown you with life. And because again, Smyrna was a really unusual city. When it was rebuilt, it was rebuilt with a city planner. It was very carefully planned. and was laid out with great beauty and great order. And, and, and it actually was on a slope, and there was a mountain. And on top of the mountain, there was such architecture that it looked like the city was literally crowned. And so the city called itself the crown city. So when God says to them, you are the off-scouring of your city. You are the fools. You are the ones they make mock of. And they call themselves the crown city, but I will give you the crown of life. This is what he's saying. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who is victorious, he who overcomes, shall not be hurt, by the second death. This is the promise. The crown that's given, there are a couple crowns in the Bible. You've heard the Stephanos crown, diadem crown. The diadem crown is the king crown. The Stephanos crown is the competitor crown. It's the victor's crown. It's the athlete's crown. And this is the crown, he says, that they'll win. So they competed in the games. In this particular case, if you were in Smyrna and you looked at Christians, you would call them the losers. They're Christians. They're losers. Look at them. Everybody makes fun of them. They're poor. They're oppressed. Some of them get put in prison. Some of them get killed. They don't don't have their head together. They're the losers. He says, no, I'm going to crown you victorious. I'm going to give you the victor's crown. That's what he says. To who? Those who are faithful to death, who are willing to suffer, will get a crown a victory given to them by Jesus. <laughs> what a day that will be. This The, the victor's crown. You, I know you say like, you know, the world has passed me by and I'm just this little nobody over here. Nobody knows my name and they think I'm kind of weird and maybe a little mentally unstable. Yeah, that's what they think now. But one day when God, when the God of heaven, when the God of life, when the God of creation crowns you with the victory crown and you stand on the 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 uh, dais of heaven and he puts the victor crown on you and then all you're going to want to do is you're going to want to worship him then the whole world's going to know yeah you really aren't a loser are you and so there is this promise that to those who overcome what is the answer to persecution what's the answer to suffering girl a lady said to me this week my sister died of cancer when she was 40. She said, I was watching TV one night. My sister was just suffering. She's a Christian. She's suffering. She died of cancer when she was 40. I was watching TV and George Burns comes on the TV. He's chomping on a cigar. and He's blaspheming God. He lives way up into his 90s. And I thought to myself, God, why would you let a man blaspheme you publicly and live all the way up into his 90s? And my dear sister, a faithful follower of you, dies in her 40s. You see, it's at a time like that when you want to see the whole world from God's perspective. There is going to be an eternity. It's going to go on and on and on forever. And those who blaspheme God will one day die, and then they will live in eternal death. And those who honor God and who praise God and who confess Christ, they will live forever in eternal death conscious bliss and the presence of God. This is the promise of the Lord. You read the screw tape letters maybe. Remember this? It's like a, it's, it's C.S. Lewis letters from one demon to another demon. And basically what he says in one of these letters is he says, don't ever let them get a picture of what the church really is. Don't ever let them see what the church really is. Because if they ever see a picture of what the church really is, they will be emboldened to face any foe. The advice is to mock and to caricature the church as silly and petty and paint it with the colors and caricatures of its least flattering professors. Don't, don't let them see the church as we do, Worm West, Wormwood says, Screwtape says to Wormwood. Don't let them see the church as it really is, spread out through time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. Don't ever let them see the church like it really is. This reminded me of, Hebrews chapter 12... Where it's a description of the church from God's perspective. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God and the judge of all spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant. It's the church of the living God, and it goes forth with mighty banners, conquering every foe with Jesus as its head. And you are in his train. follow him to heaven, to glory forever. And if you get a picture of that, you'll be able to endure suffering. But if you don't get a picture of that, you'll be sucked into this great vortex of judgment with the world in which we live. That's why he says don't ever let them get a true picture of the church from the eternal heavenly perspective. Because if they do, you will have trouble defeating them through discouragement. That's why Paul said in this lyrical passage in Romans chapter 8, I consider the sufferings of this present age. They are not worthy to compare to the glory that will be revealed in us one day. Read that Romans chapter 8. So in times of persecution, don't fear death. The one who is first and last, who is dead and who is alive, will crown us with life. Joseph San was a faithful pastor in Romania. He was a a leader, and the the police uh, captured him, and they took him, and they threatened him with death. And he told them, you know, I guess you'll have to go ahead and kill me, but if you do, my, my messages have been recorded and you will make a hero, a martyr out of me. My message is going to go all over the country. It did anyway. It's my message is going to go all over the country. They said, we're not going to cooperate with this. And so they wouldn't kill him, because he loved not his life unto death. God's eternal. This is what the passage is teaching us. He's all-knowing. This is what the passage is teaching us. He's ultimately victorious. This is what the passage is teaching us, and he shares his victory with us. So what's the message for the church in Taylor? See, God the Holy Spirit knew that we would have the Bible open our laps this morning. He guided us to this passage, and he has a message for us. I want to suggest three things, and the Spirit may suggest others. These are, number one, will we be faithful to the suffering church in the world today? Forget about what our president says or doesn't say. Forget about what our Congress says or doesn't say. Forget about what the mainstream media says or doesn't say. Should not the brothers be faithful to the brothers? If you have a brother... If you have a sister and she's suffering and he's suffering, wouldn't, she, wouldn't it only be right for you to pray for him every day? Wouldn't it only be right for you to follow the news about your suffering brothers and sisters? You see, I, I feel like when I study a passage, the first person I look to, for, I look for me, what's God telling me? And he's telling me, Ken, you have it pretty easy. You have two offices, one inside of another. They're lined with books, a little coffee machine. You don't have it hard. You go to work every day. You study and you read. reading. You have pleasant conversation with people. You don't suffer like pastors in this world that are thrown into prison and they can't see their wives and they can't see their kids or dear little old ladies or God forbid, precious young women that are terribly, horribly, unspeakably abused because they're followers of Jesus. I just don't probably, I don't think that we've probably led well in this area and let's correct that as a church and let's have a heart for the suffering church. Now of all times, that's a relevant thing. Second, Will we be faithful if we are called to suffer and die? Are we prepared to suffer and are we prepared to die when it comes to that? Maybe even a better question would be, are we preparing our children to suffer and die? Though it may not happen in our lifetime, although it may, it well, most certainly, unless God would send a wonderful revival, it most certainly will happen more and more in our nation to our own children and to our own grandchildren. If the Lord tarries, will we be faithful to the suffering church, church and Taylor? Will we be faithful to those who are called to suffer and die? Will we be faithful to be willing to suffer and die if we're called to? But here's even a probably more relevant question. Is I, we might quickly say, if that guy had a gun to my head and he said, deny Christ or die. I, and I'm like Peter, I would say, Shh, if you have to shoot me, you have to shoot me. I cannot deny Christ. How? He's been so good to me. How could I ever... Deny I I don't think I would, but I don't want to say like I'm stronger than Peter. So then you hear this little whisper of the spirit, right? And he comes over and he says to you, say, okay, so, so Ken, let me see if I understand this right. You're ready to die. Yes, sir. I'm ready to die. Okay. How about live? Are you ready to live? How about go across the street? Are you ready to go across the street? How about think about giving more? Will you give more? How about being more generous? Will you be more generous? Oh, no, wait a minute, I'll die for you, but don't be getting in my wallet now. I'll, I'll die for you, but don't ask me to go out of my comfort zone and, and start connecting with neighbors. They're weird. They're Michigan fans. I don't like them. Sorry, that, I don't know where that came from. I get one, I get one every week, right? Uh, God, don't be asking me to do something hard. God, don't be asking me to get out of my comfort zone. I'll die for you but I don't want to be inconvenienced for you. Hey, I I got people all the time that say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I won't be baptized. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't give. No, you're not a follower of Jesus if you don't give. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I don't pray. Really? I'm a follower of Jesus, but I neglect his word. Really? And By the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm not telling you to give money to church. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying this. If we would die for him, would we live for him? You've heard an illustration before. I think I've used it. It's, it's a good one to remind you about. Imagine that we have three baskets here today. It's kind of like a game show. We have a big basket here. Remember this story? We have a big basket here, and it has Monopoly money in it. We have a big basket here. has $1 bills in it. We have a big basket here. We have $100 bills in it. We say, we're gonna give you one minute to get whatever you want. I'm saying, be careful, because my wife's gonna hurt you running toward the $100 bills. Don't get in her way, right? Because she's smart. She knows that she's gonna spend her one minute on the $100 bills. But Christians all the time are playing monopoly money with the world. If I can just get one more of this or one more of that, are you kidding? You're rich, like Laodicea is gonna be this way. You're rich, but spiritually, you are just poor. And so let's not let poverty or slander or imprisonment or the threat of death or, or anything else disrupt our faithfulness. There's this guy. His story is legendary, true story, certainly not a legend, but a true story about a great church father. Ignatius said about this man whose name was Polycarp, he was a personal friend of John the Apostle. Not only was he a personal friend of John the Apostle, but this man named Polycarp was actually from Smyrna. And as you probably know, he became a martyr of the church in about A.D. 150. Remember this. So the the passage we're reading today is penned in about 90 to 95 A.D. When Polycarp goes to the stake to die, they come to him first, and they say to him, all you have to do is you have to be willing to burn incense to the mission. Certainly you can do that. And he says that he cannot do that. They come to get him and when his captors come to get him to take him to die... He offers them food and drink, and then he says to them, could I have some time alone with my Lord and prepare myself to die because I will not burn incense to demission? And they kindly, they allow him, and he spends an hour or two crying out in such fervent prayer that they're all moved. His captors are all moved by this, and while they're delivering him to his death, they say to him, they're pleading with him, you don't need to die. You can turn your, you can, you can burn incense to demission. His answer to them was so fascinating In A.D. 150, he says to them, Jesus has been faithful to me for 86 years. How can I deny him? What does that tell you about Polycarp? It tells you that Polycarp was probably the pastor of the Smyrna church. He may very well, and some scholars believe he was the one who was the messenger that delivered the message to the church in Smyrna, and he died they 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 threatened to tie him to the stake to burn him and he said you don't have to tie me to the stake and he died faithful to the lord jesus said i am the first i am the last i'm the one who was dead and now i'm alive and if you're faithful he says let him hear what the spirit says to the churches he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. If you keep reading Revelation, what you're going to find out is the second death, the first death is our physical death. The second death is spiritual death in hell forever. If you're willing to serve God, even if it costs you your life, then you'll be protected from the second death and you'll have eternal life.